Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60. Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Past, Present, Future. Today's episode is taking a look at the past, the present, and the future of the Republican Party in the United States. I'm joined by the American historian Gary Gerstel. He is in the United States for this conversation. He is the author of many different books about the history of the American Republic. And in this episode, we are going to try to tell the story in under an hour of how you get from the party of Abraham Lincoln to the party of Donald Trump and what might happen next. Past, Present, Future is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. If you've been enjoying the subjects we cover on PPF, we really think you will enjoy the LRB. And listeners can subscribe for just £1 an issue for the first three months at lrb.me slash ppf. Subscribe at lrb.me slash ppf. Gary, I'm sure I'm not alone as someone who is not either resident or born in the United States, is occasionally having to remind myself, and this is something that Donald Trump reminds us of frequently, that the party of Abraham Lincoln is the party of Donald Trump. It sometimes, to outsiders, comes as a bit of a shock. And that history has to be reconstructed so that people understand how the same party, over its history, and its history has a single identity, though it's been through many guises, uh, encompass these two presidents. So we're going to try and talk about that history to get us to the present and to think about the future. And it is an extraordinary story, the story of the Republican Party. So we'll do it in the conventional way and begin at the beginning. How would you characterize the original coalition of the Republican Party? In the decade before the Civil War, it came out of the breakup of the party system, which was dominated by the Democrats and the Whigs. So as the Whigs split, who came together to create the Republican Party? The big issue of the time was slavery in the United States. And it's the conflict over slavery that doomed the Whig Party and gave an opportunity for a new party to emerge, that being the Republican Party. The critical issue was expansion of the United States across the West The United States had been pretty evenly divided between free states and slave states, in other words, states where slavery was permitted and states where it was not. And that became unbalanced as America was rushing to the West, expanding across the continent in what it believed was its manifest destiny. And the question became, would these new territories that were being acquired and turned into states, would they be free states or would they be slave states? And the Republican Party emerged around the slogan, free soil, free labor, free men. Free soil meant land, uh, farming. Free labor meant this was to be farmed by people who were free, not only free, but independent. They would own their own land. And if slavery was 
uh, allowed to move across the continent. Family farms would be impossible. The agricultural sector would be dominated by a few very wealthy slave owners who wanted to reestablish aristocracy in the United States. And this was seen as betrayal of the promise of freedom, hence free men. And uh, free men carried a political connotation that the republic would only survive if it was supported by men who were free, which meant not just not enslaved, but owning their their own farms, owning their own shops, owning their own small businesses. So the Republican Party emerged uh, at this moment in the hope that America would become in the future a society of free labor uh, and free men and not a society dominated by what was called and demeaned as the slave power. So in a way, it was originally a party of the, not of the little man, but of the the individual and the idea of relatively small scale economic and ownership structures. At the same time, as I understand it, it was also the party of the Northeast, of industrial power and money power to a certain extent. And it did have to pull together in a two-party system. The American system has always been engineered to create the dominance of two parties, but multiple smaller organizations. And when the the system that was the Whig system broke up, it broke up in lots of different ways in different places. So there were these smaller organizations that emerged and smaller parties, many of which were nativist, what we might think of now as sort of conspiratorial, the know-nothings and people like that, the anti-Catholics, the anti-immigrant parties. The Republican Party had to somehow hold together an electoral coalition that included a philosophy of independence and small-scale politics, an economic system that was not just anti-slavery and anti-South and, in a sense, anti that kind of large agricultural model, but built around some of the economic interests of the North and the Northeast, and to pull together, you know, in an era of paranoid politics, all of these different groups. As well, how do you hold that coalition together? Because I think people will recognize some elements of that coalition in the Republican Party today. Well, the nature of political parties in America is that they are so broad and comprehensive, they always have to be an amalgam of a bewildering array of interests. And so you're absolutely right to depict the Republican Party in those terms. The, the critical phrase that helps us to understand what the Republican Party was aiming to do is that of the independent producer, because this at the same time encompasses the small producer, the, the small farmer, the artisan, the small manufacturer. But of course, under conditions of capitalism and industrial capitalism, this is the moment of the industrial revolution in the United States. If those principles are being allowed to operate, some small independent producers are going to become very large independent producers. And establishing large industries. And what the Republican Party is able to do is to, to fudge the concept of the producer. So it includes both the small farmers, the small manufacturers, the small uh, merchants, and at the same time, values, enterprise, and those people who are growing their small enterprises into very large enterprises. And so in that way, it is able to accommodate the burgeoning industrial interests of the Northeast, most in the beginning manufacturers, and then increasingly financial and banking interests as well. And here, the very little of this has actually worked out before the Civil War, but this, fighting the Civil War 
requires enormous amounts of money, enormous mobilization of, of resources, and it has the effect in the North of accelerating the industrial revolution because there all, all the limitations on the production of material for war are removed, and this is large enterprise, and this requires large resources. And so in the Civil War itself, the Republican Party becomes the party of big interest and the party of big banks. And the issue of who's got to control the party is, is as yet unresolved. Now, there's one other element to this, which speaks to questions of morality and, uh, in some cases, conspiracy. And this is an inheritance from the Whigs. The question is, who has the capacity to become an independent producer? Who has the capacity to really enjoy and deploy their independence and their liberty? And the answer that the Whigs have given and the answer that the Republicans give is not everyone. Not only were enslaved people incapable of uh, being independent, so they had to be freed, but what about all the Catholic immigrants coming to the United States? They were seen as slaves of the papacy, of, of Catholicism. There were a lot of doubts about their capacity to act in an independent way. So the Republican Party takes it upon itself to either exclude certain groups of people from the polity and seek to strip them of their ability to vote and influence politics, or it seeks to moralize them, to turn them into good Americans. And good Americans ultimately means turning them into Protestants. And if they can't turn them into Protestants, then perhaps they have to accept second-class citizenship or marginal status in American life. And this is a very important part. This moral dimension of the Republican Party is, a, is, is very important. It's an inheritance from the Whigs. And it remains in one form or another a part of the Republican Party for the duration of its history. In other words, as much as the party has changed from the time of Lincoln and the period of emancipation to the current moment, there is a strong moralizing strain within the Republican Party that says, we have to be careful whom we admit to the polity, whom we admit to America. We have to ask who is capable of being independent and acting as an upstanding and fully responsible citizen of the United States. The United States today has solved its Catholic Protestant division. So it many people don't understand how deep a division this was. Throughout the 19th century and throughout the first 50 years of the 20th century, so much so that John F. Kennedy, the first Catholic elected president of the United States, as late as 1960, has to go before a very large group of Protestant ministers in Houston, Texas in 1960 and convince them that if he's elected president, the Pope will not uh, be exercising effective authority over the United States of America. And this is deeply rooted in the Republican Party, and it gives a cultural dimension to the Republicans and allows them to have a cultural agenda uh, that can bring in groups who otherwise would be too suspicious of what would become in the late 19th and early 20th century, its big business orientation. So I want to come back to that question of Catholicism a bit later, because though you say the central tension has been resolved, there is still, I think, a really interesting question. And we are now living under America's second Catholic president. I say living under, you are, I'm observing, Joe Biden. But before we get there, let's try and bridge the intervening years. So the Republican Party elects a president, Abraham Lincoln, and it immediately breaks apart the republic. A war has to be fought and won. And as you say, in becoming the war party, they also become the party of mass mobilization. 
of federal government and a vastly extended remit of federal government. And that continues after the war. So the party of the war becomes the party of reconstruction. And that means military domination of the South and a willingness to use the power of federal government, including its military wing, to impose an order on the American South to deliver the results of the Civil War, emancipation. And that lasts until 1876. And then a very consequential election presidential election of 1876, extremely close, very, very contentious, very hard to resolve, results in a kind of compromise, which allows the continuation of a Republican in the White House, but the abandonment of Reconstruction. And in a way, it changes the character of the party and the character of the Republic. Is it a fork in the road? I mean, is there a counterfactual here, a path not taken? Because the party of Reconstruction is ultimately a very different kind of party than the party the Republican Party becomes for the next 100 years, effectively. So it was a party trying to govern the South from the North, and then it becomes a party of the North, but one that has allowed the South its own ability to govern itself, including the creation of a new racial order. Could it have gone a different way? I mean, could the Republican Party have remained the party of Reconstruction or, or had that more or less run out of road by that point anyway? I think it's tantalizing to think there might have been another way because the failure of Reconstruction meant the failure of the campaign for racial equality in the United States. And anyone who has observed American society in the last five or 10 years or, or before knows how vexatious the issue of racial inequality remains and how much the business of the Civil War is unfinished. I would like to think that there was another way, but I don't really think that there was a road not taken. What would it have taken for Reconstruction to succeed? And Reconstruction meant putting African Americans on the same plane as white Americans in the American South at a time when white Americans in the American South did not want racial equality. They wanted the restoration of not slavery, but white supremacy. What would it have taken? It would have taken beyond 1877, Another 20 to 25 years of military domination by the North of the South. It would have required something that was then anathema to the United States, a large standing army. One of the principles of the foundation of the American Republic in the late 18th century is that the United States would never have a standing army of the sort that Great Britain had. So it would have required breaking what was regarded as one of the foundational traditions of the American Republic. The building of a large centralized federal state was itself controversial because this too was seen as contrary to the spirit of the American Revolution when steps were taken to prevent the tyranny of George III reemerging. And what was the tyranny of George III? It was not just monarchy, but it was concentrated executive power at the center of the nation. The United States remains remained and still in some respects remains committed to a lot of political power resting with the individual states where it is allegedly close to the people. So constructing the central government was something that Republicans did, uh, but it was not an easy task and there was tremendous resistance to that. It was seen as contrary to the constitution in some basic ways and there was an opposition to this in the North as well as the South. Finally, if we ask what did equality for African-Americans in the South mean, it meant some kind of 
economic redistribution of resources from the rich to the poor, from those who had land to those who did not. And this is a time of intense industrialization in the North. Uh, and workers in the North are themselves beginning to say, what about redistributing property that Andrew Carnegie and other titans of industry have? What about redistributing their fortunes from them to us. So the same question about the right of government to regulate property in the public interest or to redistribute property from the rich to the poor, this was not just a Southern matter by the 1870s and 1880s. This was a Northern matter where the Northern society, Northern industry was being racked by strikes that are intensifying, workers rebelling, uh, demanding more of a share of profits of industry. And so if the North had carried out its program of radical redistribution of resources in the South, it was faced with the same questions in the North. And those were questions it did not want to face. One of the radical Republicans, one of the people most committed to 40 acres and a mule, which was a formula for redistributing land in the South to freed men and women, his district was Pittsburgh. What was Pittsburgh? Pittsburgh was the steel manufacturing capital of the United States. It's where conflicts between capital and labor, between those who had money and those who didn't, were most vexed in the North, pitched battles between workers and their employers. If the North had continued with its project of reconstructing the South, it would have made the confrontation with issues of redistribution in the North that much more intense. And for an industrializing capitalist economy freeing itself from constraints, this was not a road that the Republican Party was prepared to travel. So I think at the end of the day, that's a long answer to your very important question. It must be discussed, but I don't see how the project of reconstruction could have been carried on for another 20 years, given the distribution of vested interests and projects going on in the United States at that time. So in a way, therefore, 1876 marks the end of the original purpose of the Republican Party, which was, in a sense, to win and then to deliver on the results of the Civil War. So it acquires a different purpose. It becomes the party of certain kinds of business interests, but it, you know, it, has, it still has a complicated coalition to hold together. One of the things that I find fascinating about it and hard to trace through its history is the relationship between the Republican Party and the idea that it was, as it was in its origins, a kind of war party, the party of mass mobilization and the party that used the power of the federal government, which is essentially military power at this point, though without a standing army. But the strongest stick that the central government has to wield involves its control of coercive force. In some ways, it remained the war party, so that the wars of the end of the 19th century, the, the sort of proto-imperial wars of the American state, are fought under a Republican president. McKinley and opposed by Democrats, including populist Democrats like William Jennings Bryan, as it were, Democrats against the war, Republicans for the idea of using American power overseas. But the thing that transforms the American state as it transforms democratic states everywhere are the First and Second World Wars. And those were interludes of democratic presidencies, Woodrow Wilson, Franklin, Roosevelt, in a long period that had been dominated by Republicans. So this is a you know big question, but is the Republican Party over the course of its history a party in a sense that moves away from the idea that war and the military power of the state is its raison d'etre, and in some senses gradually, bit by bit, cedes that to the Democrats? Because 
if you take the story up to the present, you know, one of the striking things about American politics now is the attempt by many Republicans, actually, to label the Democrats as the war party. Um, that is the neocon party, the party that is engaged in perpetual wars. And there's a big fight going on over Ukraine at the moment. And suspicion of the war is much stronger in Republican circles than it is among Democrats, I think. I mean, not entirely, because some of this cuts across party divides. And there is a meeting of left and right in criticism of skepticism about perpetual war. But is there a sense in which, as over its long history, these roles are very gradually, but through these crucial interludes, reversed? Yes, but uh, yes, this is happening, but it's it's a recent development, really, uh, since the end of the Cold War. If we are to cover 100 years, which in a sense is what your question asks me to do, I think there are two stages of uh, the Republican Party being the war party, one period in which it is deeply contested and a second period in which it is not. The period in which it's contested is from 1898 until 1946. You're right, McKinley, Theodore Roosevelt want to make the country into a powerful nation capable of possessing colonies overseas, engaging in wars, fighting other imperial powers for its share of the world's wealth and glory. But there are always opponents within the Republican Party throughout this period. In World War I, there were the so-called irreconcilables, largely Republican senators from the Midwestern states who raised the banner of isolationism. It's not the best term, but it's a way of connoting the sense that if America behaves like European powers, the United States is going to become like a European power and, and engage in all these wars of adventure that are ultimately going to undercut the liberty and republicanism of America. This is true through the 1930s and 40s, and it's, I have to refer to a now utterly forgotten figure in the Republican Party, but he was once the standard bearer, a man named Robert Taft, senator from Ohio, who was once called Mr. Republican. And he is reluctant to, for the United States to mobilize for World War II. Uh, he still thinks in 1941 that the New Deal is a greater threat to the future of the United States than Adolf Hitler. Uh, and he is the favorite for becoming the next Republican president after the long period of Rooseveltian rule from 1933 to 1945, continued by Truman. 1948 is going to be his year to be elected. And what undermines him is the Cold War. And this is the second stage of the Republican Party becoming the war party. And this is the point where all dissenters about the virtue of being a war party are expelled, expunged from the Republican Party because there, there is no mission more important for the United States than the defeat of the Soviet Union and its allies and the elimination of communism seen as a form of totalitarianism from the very face of the earth. And the Republican Party stakes its life, its mission, its cause on defeating communism everywhere. And if you dissent from that point of view, you really have no place in the Republican Party, let's say from 1948 until sometime in the 1990s after the Soviet Union 
has been defeated and communism as a live ideology has been eliminated from the face of the earth. Uh, and this was the period in which the Republican Party was always attacking the Democratic Party for being soft on communism. It was one of the most powerful charges that Republicans labeled at Democrats. This was an existential conflict between, as Republicans understood it, the land of freedom and a world of tyranny, and there could be no compromise with the Soviet Union. This had to be fought until the Soviet Union was eliminated from the face of the earth. And this becomes the Reagan mission successfully accomplished between 1989 and 1991. Since that time, the Republican Party has been seeking a new identity and a new mission. And some of its, what I would characterize as its disorientation, is that it's had difficulty finding a mission comparable to the mission that being the war party against communism had given it for 50 years. And in the process, so it has gone in many different directions, and I think and often it has lost its, its bearings. But we have seen uh, through various Republican figures, beginning with Patrick Buchanan in the 1990s, continuing with Donald Trump and the Freedom Caucus in the House of Representatives, which is leading the fight against further support uh, for Ukraine. Uh, this is also the party that has undertaken to to attack the institutions of war and and coercion in the United States, the CIA, the FBI. I have to say that as someone who came of age in the late 60s and early 70s and was a participant in the new left, it's mind-boggling and sort of uh, consciousness joggling to see positions taken by the new left of that period, the attack on the FBI, the attack on the CIA, the attack on endless wars, the conviction that one of the deepest problems facing America is that of the deep state uh, that has gotten its tentacles into every area of American life. This was the argument of the new left in the 1960s and 1970s. Uh, and that argument and critique, it has not been abandoned by the by the left in American society in terms of the forever wars and the war on terror and the critique of Guantanamo and everything that that's involved. The left has continued to critique uh, th that kind of uh, position of being on an endless war footing. But it is true, as as you suggest, that the Republican Party is now critiquing a society that it sees as having given itself over too much to executive power, given too much power to agencies dedicated to putting suspected dissenters uh, under surveillance. And in the process, it is actually recovering some of those isolationist roots of the early to mid 20th century, which had been present in the party at that time and during the era of the Cold War were completely squashed. And so we are see, seeing a Republican Party seeking to connect to that older history, uh, wanting out of America having an international military presence, opting out of multilateral arrangements in the Pacific and in Europe, meaning NATO, reneging on important commitments to Ukraine, 
this is not in the interests of pacifism, it should be said, because this also goes along with the culture of guns and violence in the Republican Party, which is, is very paramount. But it it seeks to identify a future for America that is unilateralist rather than multilateralist, where the U.S. frees itself from constraints, diminishes the institutions of executive power in the United States in the interest of creating or restoring an older conception of uh, American liberty. The Republican Party, I don't know how much it's aware of that older history and how actively it's seeking to recover it, but it is discovering it just the same. And it is beginning to define a different kind of Republican Party. And it, as I said, it's stunning for me to see this transformation in the Republican Party from the 1960s and 70s until this current moment. So shape-shifting is inevitably part of the identity of parties that have been around for a century or more. You can't survive that long without going through serious contortions. A couple that happened to the Republican Party. So for most of its history in, in the first century, to use a really old-fashioned sort of historical way of framing it, it was the in-party in the sense that it tended to win, as it were the periods where it was in opposition were the exception, not the rule. So for instance, Woodrow Wilson's presidency from, from 1913 to 21 was an outlier in a long period of Republican dominance. But with the arrival of the New Deal following the Great Depression, FDR, then Truman. Then we have an interlude of Eisenhower, but then Kennedy and Johnson. You have a long period where the Republican Party are, in a sense, the out party, probably best characterized by Barry Goldwater's campaign in 64, where, as were the Republican Party, disastrously in electoral terms, but maybe setting the seeds of a, a later evolution, is presenting itself as this kind of upstart party, in a way, almost getting back to its roots, but also very skeptical one might almost say paranoid about some of the establishment institutions of the American state, but also offering a different kind of vision. The second big shift, the thing that ends the Republican Party being the out party, is what tends to be called the Southern strategy. So it, the biggest shift of all is the party of the North, the Republicans. That's what it's been throughout its history. Through the 60s, but particularly the 70s, and then culminating with Reagan's presidency and beyond, becomes the party of the South. And the Democrats, who had been the party of the South, don't, in a sense, become the party of the North, but you do get a kind of flip. So I have two questions about that flip. And you're going to have to you know, try and condense this. <laughs> How did it happen? I mean, it's an extraordinary piece of, you might call it political entrepreneurship, or you might call it something else. And secondly, does it still make sense to think of American politics in the light of that shift? Or are we in some ways getting beyond the idea, which has dominated the history of the Republic, that the way to understand the parties is primarily geographical and it is a north-south divide? Because obviously there's a lot more going on than north-south. There's urban-rural, there's east-west, and then in contemporary politics, there are generational divides, there are educational divides, and so on. So does it make sense anymore to still think of the great shift as having been the north-to-south shift that the Republicans underwent? Yes, it does, even though there are ways in which the north-south division is being complemented by other divisions, which have to do with education more than with geography. But if you 
if you look at the map of support for the Republican Party and and where its its core is, you know where the red is brightest and most solid, it maps almost exactly onto the Confederate states of the 1860s during the Civil War. And this speaks to the extraordinary nature of the, of the transformation that you refer to, where the Republican Party, which was founded as the party to end slavery and the party of emancipation for enslaved men and women, becomes the party not, not necessarily of white supremacy, but it becomes the party that allows those Americans who want to, to be white supremacists to be so. And this is the Southern strategy. You're right that the critical period of transition is the 1960s and 70s. That is a period often referred to uh, by American historians as the second reconstruction to finish the work left unfinished by the first reconstruction. A hundred years later, finally bringing racial equality to America and solving America's oldest and deepest problem, which is the divide between whites and blacks with whites on top and blacks on the bottom. And this proves to be as contentious, no, not quite as contentious because a second civil war has not broken out, but it's an extraordinarily contentious process in the 1960s and 70s. And in the 60s and 70s, there is no longer an acceptable, explicit campaign for white supremacy as there was in the late 19th century. The campaign against civil rights for African-Americans takes a somewhat different form where everyone in America by the 1970s is willing to say, we believe in equality, the equality of all people and, the and everyone having the same opportunities. But what does that require? Does that require me as a Southerner to serve a black person at my restaurant if I don't want to? Do, does, do I have to rent a hotel room to them if I don't want to? Do I have to send my children to schools with blacks as well as, as whites? And the answer that many Amer white Americans in the South as well as in the North give is, is no. And this is in effect a protest against full integration that the races in some respects must still remain separate. This is the sentiment of many whites. The form in which it takes is not to declare that the white race is supreme, but that whites should be free to live their lives as they have customarily done. So if it's not a white supremacist campaign in name, it has many of the same effects. And just as Reconstruction met with a huge backlash, the second Reconstruction meets with a huge backlash and Republican Party looking to get back into power after decades of being out of power, seizes the opportunity, abandons its heritage of being the party of emancipation, the party of racial equality for the sake of political success. And, and that movement is bound up with another movement to which it's closely allied, but it's the second movement is analytically distinct. To bring racial equality to America involved a huge program of social engineering on the part of the central state, affirmative action programs, quotas, compelling institutions to open their doors to racial minorities in ways they had not been willing to do, and many of them had not been willing to do them at all. These decisions about 
how to organize American life and which governments were responsible for opening or closing doors, customarily these decisions have been left to the states. But if they were to be continued to be left to the states, many of these states would have allowed the older patterns to prevail. And so the central government says we have to remedy racial equality. The only way to do that is to bring much more power into the central state than it had had before. And the Republican Party thus not simply takes a stand against the forced integration of people, it takes a stand against the central government using its powers to force that integration. And in the process, undergoes another transformation because in the Civil War, it was the party of big government. And from the 1960s and 70s on, it becomes the party of small government. And to distill this into a pithy line which is my favorite for understanding what the Republican Party became about. It's Grover Norquist, head of an organization called Americans for Taxpayer Reform. And his great line was, which he repeated ad nauseum, tremendously effective. He says, I want to shrink the federal government to the point where we can drown it in a bathtub. That becomes the mission of the Republican Party. It's bound up with race, but it's also distinct from race because it's saying that government power, insofar as it exists, ought to reside with the states, not with the central government. And the Republican Party is standing for the original purpose of the new nation of the 18th century. This is what the U.S. Constitution wanted. The Republican Party is going to restore America to that heritage. And this line of politics, which becomes fundamental to the Republican Party, shrinking the size of the central state, restoring powers to the individual states. This is bound up with the revolt against the civil rights revolution, but it's also distinct from it and now permeates all areas of American life. And you could say emblematic of it is what still to my mind remains the great piece of shape-shifting in American political history, which is on the question of abortion. The Republican Party in the late 1960s was still the pro-choice party, not least because it wasn't at that point the anti-Catholic party, but the Democrats were the Catholics, as it were, they were the party for, with a long history of Catholic support. And for Republicans, abortion was partly a question of personal privacy uh, and choice. And the way you, as it were, keep the state out of your life is you preserve the sanctity of the human body. You don't want the state interfering. So regulating abortion would be a way of allowing the state greater power. And within 10 years, that has done a complete flip. The Republicans, by the end of the 1970s, are the pro-life party, and the Democrats are on the path to becoming the pro-choice party. Now, we can't tell that story here, but it has one interesting, for me, consequence. And this goes back to that question about Catholicism. So if you were a Martian observing American politics today, and you're just trying to make sense of it. What, what are these parties? You know, What do they stand for? And you looked at the Republicans, and you see here's a country that's now, as I understand it, about 25% Catholic, the United States. And a lot of that is recent Catholic immigration, Hispanic, Latino immigration. So by no means are Catholics the dominant religious group. But one institution is dominated by Catholics. Not the presidency. There have only been two Catholic presidents. It's the Supreme Court. So six of the current nine justices are Catholics. So what is the Republican Party for? What, what did it do under Donald Trump? What were its achievements? Didn't do much. Created a lot of noise, Trump's presidency. 
I mean, you know, you, the, the achievements could probably be listed on a very small piece of paper, but it put three Catholics on the Supreme Court. And abortion is, as it were, part of the reason behind this. That in itself is an extraordinary change, right? The party that was founded out of suspicion for all the reasons that you said, and it's to do with nativism and, and fears of European immigration and so on, has become the party that sees part of its role as to, I mean, I'm putting this too crudely, but to put Catholics on the Supreme Court. So if I was the Martian, I would think, that's quite a shift. That's an extraordinary shift. And there would occasionally be a token Catholic Supreme Court justice on the Supreme Court in the 19th century, but most of the justices in their graves are now turning over in their graves. Because if you, it's, it's not just the Martians who would be puzzled, it would be all the 19th century forebears of the current court who would say, how can America be America if six of the nine justices are Catholics? How can you- It should be said, it should be said one of those six is, is a progressive Democrat nominee, but the other five, and the, and the three Trump nominees, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, and Barrett, are all Catholics. And there were other Catholics on the on the Supreme Court too. So the, the Catholics, we might say, have a solid majority on the Supreme Court. So I, I have uh, uh, mixed feelings about this because I am cognizant of the depth of the Catholic-Protestant divide in, across American history. And part of the founding of America was about creating a Protestant uh, refuge from a world dominated by papists. And that Protestant zeal uh, and intolerance toward those who were not themselves Protestant is an integral part of American history from the 1600s right through the 1960s and 70s. And Catholics suffered all kinds of discrimination, as did other groups who were not themselves Protestants. There was, for a long period of time in America, what was called an Anglo-Saxon ascendancy. Doesn't Anglo-Saxon doesn't have quite the meaning in America that it does in Britain, but it meant a Protestant ascendancy where the establishment would be comfortably and securely Protestant. And so if the country was veering in a wrong direction, you could trust these people who understood the original mission of America to, to set it right. And now we're in a very different situation. The fact that we are in a different situation is a historic achievement for the United States in the sense that the Catholic-Protestant divide, also the Christian-Jewish divide, which was also a source of severe tension in American society for a long period of time, a lot of that has been transcended, so much so that when I was teaching in the United States, trying to teach students about the depths of Protestant Catholic divisions in the United States, it was hard to persuade them that these tensions and conflicts were once serious. And America has redefined itself from being an Anglo-Saxon nation to being a Judeo-Christian nation in which the three faiths were accorded equal place and equal treatment. But it's this very um, reconciliation of the different religious groups that has permitted religion and morality to come flooding back into American politics in a major way. If we think back to the time of Franklin Roosevelt in the 1930s, what does he have to do to win? He's got a northern constituency full of Catholics and Jews who have suffered at the hands of Protestants. And he's got a southern wing of the party, which is entirely white Protestants and they don't particularly like Jews or Catholics. What's his strategy going to be going forward? He has to do everything he can to keep religion and morality out of politics 
Because if they enter politics, it's going to destroy the Democratic Party, which it had done as recently as the 1920s. And one of his major successes is to bring his Protestant constituency together with his Catholic and Jewish constituency. This becomes the umbrella group. And this becomes the origins of the conviction in the Democratic Party that morality is an affair for private citizens to decide in which government has no business meddling. So the modern Democratic Party, which is extremely liberal on these scores and views the sanctity of privacy of the home as being under the control of people who live in that home and not by legislators living in a capital city elsewhere. This party is born in the 1930s and 1940s. And the Democratic Party has to do everything it can to keep religion out of politics for the sake of its survival. And now it's become a foundational element of its politics. On the other hand, the reconciliation between, the big reconciliation is between Protestants and Catholics, which happens in the 1970s and 80s. And that allows Christian moralism to come flooding back into American politics in a way that had been impossible 30 or 40 years earlier. And one manifestation of this flooding of uh, morality back into American politics is not simply that Catholics are on the Supreme Court, but they feel very free to engage in moral rulings without hesitation. And this is another indication of the degree to which what had been what I what I would call a positive development in American life has generated an unintended consequence, which is that morality once kept on the margins uh, has flooded back into American politics. And of course, it's never a universal morality. It's always someone's morality that they're trying to impose on someone else. This has deep roots in American life and American politics. So in that respect, it's not surprising that it has come back. But it's not just that Catholics are on the Supreme Court, but that they feel free to engage in a kind of moralizing that emerges from their personal religious convictions. There was a very distinguished Catholic on the Supreme Court in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, Brennan, and he would never have acted on his Catholic impulses in, in the ways in which the current justices are, because he understood that his Catholicism was not for the public sphere. It was for the private sphere. And that's no longer the world in which America is living. So I don't know if we've explained in that history how the party of Lincoln can also be the party of Trump, but I imagine people listening will recognize in that story various elements of contemporary republicanism. And what's so fascinating about the Republican Party now is that all of these strands are at work. So you've, you know, there's a wing of the Republican Party today that looks to Hungary as uh, the shining model of the future because they see in someone like Viktor Orban not just a, a strong man politician in the Trump mold, but a defender of Judeo-Christian civilization. As we've talked about, there's a strand of republicanism now echoing its earlier history that's deeply suspicious of American overseas entanglements and connects it with its suspicion of the various branches of the federal government. They see a kind of, not a military-industrial complex, but a kind of military surveillance complex at work, and a state of permanent war as being a way of empowering various federal agencies at the expense of the the ordinary citizen. There's Trumpism, which has you know, a complicated cocktail of different forces at work, but it includes conspiracism and paranoia, as well as standing up for the little man. It's much harder now than at 
any time in my lifetime to say what the Republican Party stands for. I don't know. We're not going to talk about it now, but we will probably come back and talk about it when we know who the nominee is. Uh, what's going to happen in the upcoming election? It's still looking very probable, but not certain by any means that it will be Trump. But do you see any possibility of this this new ferment pulling apart this party? It's you know it, it is along perhaps with the British Conservative Party that the most remarkably successful electoral organization in the Western world. And like the British Conservative Party, which if the party of Lincoln is the party of Trump, the party of Churchill is the party of Liz Truss. You know, these parties can accommodate quite a wide range of different characters. Their adaptability is the essence of their ability to survive. So one should never write off any party. And in two-party systems, it's incredibly hard for the existing framework to break apart for a new party to emerge. There have been attempts. It, it almost never works. But occasionally it does. And the evidence of that is the Republican Party, which came from nowhere in 10 years to become and remains this day dominant in American politics. The Republican Party is also a party that only at the moment seems to be able to win presidential elections through the Electoral College. If it was a straightforward, plebiscitary popular vote, it would keep losing. But in congressional elections, in the popular vote, it does sometimes win. So it's not just a minority party, but it feels like for it to be a majority party, it's through, as it were, the states that that happens. At the national level, the Democrats can assemble a bigger coalition. Is there any possibility, looking to the future, that this two-party system could break apart under these strains? Leaving aside whether it's Trump or someone else, DeSantis, you know, Biden may be re-elected, who knows, right? But thinking over, a, as it were, a 10, 20-year period, is this at least potentially one of the, the moments where the party system could shift? Because the, the Republican Party is, it's a hard organization to define at the moment. I think there is no more Republican Party establishment. That's that's a, another way of describing the many component parts of this. And part of what makes it so hard to get a fix on the Republican Party now is that there is no establishment saying, this is what we are. So there are multiple groups of Republicans saying, this is what I want the party to be. And you know, Trump is still in the fast lane, but his program has a limited shelf life, if, if only because he's a rather old man and if he's around for one more election, he won't be around for for any others. So it, it is very hard to get a fix. And I think it speaks to the confusion and volatility of this moment that we can't easily define what the Republican Party stands for because it stands for many things. As for a, a new party emerging, it needs to be said that the only successful third party movement in all of American history is the Republican Party. <laughs> of the 1850s. There have been numerous efforts to establish third parties since that time. All of them have failed. And that speaks volumes about how difficult it is to create a new party in America, in part because you don't create one party from the center. You have to create 50 parties in 50 states. The infrastructure required to establish and sustain this is just so extraordinary. It can't be easily done. So let me rephrase your question a little bit to say, because I don't want to say no, it can never happen. Uh, what would it take for a new party to emerge? And it, it would take a, a crisis of the sort we haven't yet seen 
in America in, in recent decades. Uh, one form is easy to imagine, Trump winning in 2024. I think if Trump wins, uh, democracy as we know it in America is finished, not for all time, but in the short term. And America will be in the position of other countries who have empowered a dictator and then have to figure out how to struggle to get their democracy back. So uh, this will create an unprecedented set of circumstances in the United States, which will lead to political movements, eruptions of the sort that we can scarcely imagine at this time. Another possibility is if the Freedom Caucus and their supporters in the House of Representatives, these are the most radical Republicans who really want to tear down the state, and they don't really care about the destruction that ensues, or so they say. But if they were successful in doing what they say they've been trying to do now for 30 years, which is to get the U.S. to default on its debt. If they are actually successful in pulling this off, if they have the conviction and the stomach to get through the period of mayhem and destruction worldwide that America defaulting on its debt would result in, those would create the circumstances in which we may see either a profound party configuration or a new political party emerge. But think about the wreckage that that would cause to the international financial system, the wreckage it would cause to the United States, the amount of suffering that it would entail. If something like that were to occur, if they actually carry through with their threat and obstruct efforts to reach compromises, which have been successfully affected in these moments of near crisis over the last 30 years, then that would provoke, that would create a set of circumstances in which I could imagine a very different set of political parties arising in the United States. So to put it bluntly, and this is going to be my last question, the story that we've been discussing, as you say, the only successful example of this, it's the Whigs that break apart, the Republicans in a sense, ultimately replace them. Of course, they have to peel off some Democrats as well, including some Northern Democrats. But the Democratic Party remains intact in a sense, although it becomes the party of the Confederacy, and then it has to reinvent itself again. What you describe sounds like it probably requires both parties to break apart, um, or at least there has to be some upheaval on the other side too. I think if the Republican Party goes through with its threat to default on, on debt, that would break up the Republican Party. There are people who still vote for the Republican Party for the old reasons. It's a party of finance. It's a party of it's it's still the major party of Wall Street. It's the party of financial integrity and fiscal discipline. Some there are a lot of even if that's not represented in the establishment of the party, it's a lot of Republicans vote Republican for that reason in the United States. There are many people like that in the United States. And if the Republican Party committed an act, it would destroy the Republican Party as we know it. But those people wouldn't defect to the Democrats. You think there is then the space for someone to pull those people into a new space into which some Democrats could also be pulled? Because otherwise, you're just going to create the conditions for the yes, hegemony yes. of the other party. Well, I think of the, you know, it would create an economic crisis near in magnitude to that of the Great Depression of the 
30s. And if we think of the of the major reorientation of parties at that time, the Democratic Party would also be faced with a situation that they had not confronted before or since the time of Roosevelt in the early 30s. Uh, so it, I'm thinking through the different circumstances that the default would result in and the chaos that it would yield. So in a sense, at that point, all bets are off. But in the short term, the, the Democratic Party would be the the uh, short-term beneficiary, but the chaos might be so extreme uh, that it might be impossible short-term for any political party in, in America to manage the mess. And thus, I think it would entail a period of extreme volatility politically that would ultimately yield something that could be profoundly different. Gary Gersel's most recent book is The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order, America and the World in the Free Market Era. It's going to be coming out in paperback very soon. It is highly recommended. Where we ended that conversation does link back to one of the earlier episodes in the History of Ideas series that I recorded about David Hume and public debt. I end that episode by talking about what an American default might mean in Hume's terms. We will tweet the link to that episode. Do please follow us on Twitter at PPF Ideas. We will also tweet the link to an earlier episode of the Talking Politics podcast, in which I talked to the historian Sarah Churchwell about the completely amazing story of how abortion politics in the United States was turned on its head in the 1970s. Coming up on Past, Present, Future for the next five weeks... We are doing a little mini-series for the summer of the history of ideas. So this is the 20th century story of the history of the great political essays. I am going to be talking over the next five weeks about five of the greatest essays ever written. By Virginia Woolf, by George Orwell, by Simone Weil, by James Baldwin, and by Susan Sontag. There'll be one of those a week for the next five weeks. I hope in themselves they form an interesting mini-series before we come back in the autumn with many more guests and many more episodes of Past, Present, Future. Next week, Virginia Woolf, A Room of One's Own. Please join us for that. My name is David Runciman and this has been Past, Present, Future, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.